Paradise was lost in a garden. On that terrible day, Satan tempted Eve to exercise her will against God's will. She did, and Adam did, and paradise was lost. Choosing to exercise their will against God's will, Adam and Eve dug the human race into the mire of sin. Sin now clings to our very nature. We see everywhere the papers around us in daily experience. We see war. We see hatred, blame-shifting, selfish ambition, greed, and anger, and lying, and stealing, and illicit lust. It characterizes human history. We have a taste in our mouth, don't we? An insane craving to do what we want in disregard of what God wants. He says, do not worry. And that's exactly what we want to do. He says, do not love money. And we welcome greed. He says, do not lust and we want illicit sex. He says, love your enemy, and we hate our enemy so naturally. To the core of our being, we naturally want our will for us to prevail over God's will for us. Yet in His amazing mercy, In His immense grace, God started a rescue operation the very day that Adam and Eve sinned. And the very center of that redemptive plan is the sacrificial death of Jesus of Nazareth. Everything hinges on that historical event. As Jesus explained to His disciples at the Last Supper, Christ's own blood will ratify a new covenant between God and His people. From that point forward, reconciliation to God will be realized through faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whose body was sacrificed to pay the penalty of God's wrath against sinners, and in whose resurrection life we can enter as we believe and are forgiven of our sins. A new age of reconciliation to God has dawned. And then, abruptly, Jesus ends the meal. It's a time to revel. It's a time to wonder. It's a time to weigh these weighty words of new covenant through His blood. But Jesus says, let's go. The small band dutifully descends the outside staircase from the upper room to the street below. It is late, but according to custom, Passover pilgrims fill the streets of Jerusalem. They've finished their Passover meal late this night, and they've gone out into the streets to sing and to talk and to celebrate in the night air. And so Jesus and his band walk through the streets, perhaps hardly noticed in all of the commotion, They exit a city gate and they cross the Cadron Creek, which perhaps still flowed red with the blood of Passover lambs slain. 
slain at the temple earlier that evening. They ascend the western slope of the Mount of Olives. Behind them, the torch lights flicker across the holy city, and they plod upward. The joyous voices of the pilgrims slowly fading away at their backs. Their destination on this dark night is an olive orchard where Jesus has previously sought refuge. They all know the place well, including Judas, who is as they walk back in Jerusalem, assembling a posse to seize Jesus. Redemption's plan has brought us now from Eden to Gethsemane. And in this mountain garden, Satan will unleash the full forces of his tempting powers like a wild beast upon Jesus. Indeed, evil's darkest hour has arrived in full force. We find in this dark hour that Jesus submits to the will of his Father in prayer, beginning at verse 39 of Luke chapter 22. If you'll make your way there, Luke chapter 22 and verse 39, we pick up where we left off last week. Jesus leaving this upper room goes out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples follow him, verse 39 of Luke 22. As usual, during the festival season, after teaching at the temple during the day, Jesus finds refuge on the Mount of Olives at night. This night, Jesus stops at an olive grove where there is an olive press, Gethsemane, according to Matthew and Mark. And verse 40, on reaching the place... He said to them, pray that you will not enter into temptation. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus knows the darkness of this hour. He knows that Satan has asked God for permission to assault these disciples. We don't know the scene entirely, but in some sense, Satan stands before God and says, I want them. Give me your disciples for this night. Jesus knows this has happened. The necessary preparation for that attack is not to start praying incantations. It's not to start lighting candles. It's not to start naming the demons who now descend upon the group. Jesus says the way to deal with such an attack is to pray. Talk to your heavenly Father that you not enter temptation that you not fall into this pit. You know, a common error, I think, with which we deal with sin often is to flirt with temptation. To walk that thin edge between being solicited and falling into the sin. There's a certain joy just in the temptation, isn't there? And we like to play with it. 
Jesus says, here's the key for my disciples. Here's what my disciples do. You don't flirt with the temptation. You pray to never even get into it. You so hate it, and you so love God, that you, in your prayer life, ask Him to not bring you in to temptation. The truth of the matter is that our flesh sees the next best thing to sin as the temptation to sin. And once we begin to play with the temptation, it is so easy to walk in. Pray, says Jesus, that you not fall into temptation. This night will not be a challenge to some sins that we find so common. The greed and the lust and the selfishness and the petty crimes that we commit against God. This night, the temptation will be disloyalty to Jesus Christ in which every temptation and sin is bound up. You will be under assault. Pray. Verse 41, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, and he knelt down and prayed. The common posture for prayer in our day, I suppose, is sitting on our seats and bowing our heads. The common posture in that way, day was to stand on one's feet and to look up into heaven with open eyes. I think in both cultures, kneeling in prayer indicates a degree of intensity. And another gospel writer says that in fact as he hit his knees on the earth, he came down to his very face falling to the ground. We cannot begin to sense the agony that now begins. When Jesus says, 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. In the Old Testament, as we consider the Old Testament texts of Scripture, cup is often used of the wrath of God, draining out His wrath as a cup upon the sinner's head. I believe that Jesus is pleading here with the Father to deliver Him from death on the cross. Now, some will differ with that interpretation, but I think there's good reason to take that here. I don't think he's just asking to be relieved of the emotional pressure of the moment. I think he is saying, can I be freed from the cross? Can I be freed from the cross? We may well witness right here at this moment the most intense temptation that has ever taken place. His soul is bending and it is about to snap. He's tempted to want to bypass the cross against the Father's will. He's told them, hasn't he, over and over, I must die. And I must rise again. I will die and I will rise again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. But he says here, Father, if you're willing, take this cup. 
But the temptation is met in the next phrase. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The victory over sin is won in a dark garden on Christ's knees. And that phrase, not my will, but yours be done, is the tactic that wins the battle. Paradise was lost when Adam and Eve essentially said, not your will, but mine be done. But on this night, in this garden, a strong hand reaches out and takes hold again of paradise for sinners like you and me. When Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. People, our redemption hangs on that phrase. Our eternal salvation hangs on that thin hook. Please take it away, but your will be done. And the agony of holding to this prayer so depleted Jesus of his resources that he could not endure that night or the next day without God's intervention. Verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. When God's children obey him, against great odds. God is in the habit of delivering unique spiritual strength. I praise God for that truth of history and of His Word. Do I speak with anyone here today who is finding it hard to obey God's will? You know what His will is, and you say, I don't want it. It's so difficult. It's so hard. I can't bring myself to do it. I can't bring myself to stop it. I have great encouragement for you here. God is in the habit of supplying spiritual strength to those who choose His will. The battle is not over for Jesus, though, at that point. We learn from the other Gospels that Jesus continues to agonize in three separate sessions of prayer, checking back with His disciples. And Luke records Jesus' utter agony on this dark night in verse 44. Being in anguish, He prayed more earnestly, and His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In anguish, the Greek word conflict or struggle was used often in athletic contests. He was pushing his body to the utter limits. There was something going on around him. It was the scene. It was the situation. It was the watching of his father and the angels that brought him to this place of utter agony in physical exertion such that the sweat poured out of his body as if it were the heaviness of blood. Christ's body temperature rose, and from the pores, 
agony dropped to the earth in droplets of sweat. Why such anxiety? Remember the couple weeks ago, I think, in which we looked at the death of Socrates. Peaceful. Talking to his disciples, encouraging people around, slowly slipping off into death. No fear, no worry. In fact, seeing death as his release. Why is Jesus so scared? Why this anxiety that does not even mark some of his followers who will give their life for him? I think this agony has nothing to do with facing death as such. I think this agony can be connected to prophecy. For instance, Jesus may well be thinking of John the Baptist who said to him through prophetic utterance, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For Jesus' death was in fact a gate back into paradise. A return to his heavenly Father. Wouldn't that not excite him to consider he'd be back in fellowship with his his Father? Certainly it would. There's more going on here. Jesus knows that that gate will be for him to sacrifice his life for the world, to pay the penalty of sin. He knows Isaiah 53, where the prophet says, Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted, Jesus agonized with the thought that his father would strike him. As when Abraham raised his knife on Mount Moriah to sacrifice the life of his son Isaac, so Jesus looked now into his father's eyes. And Isaiah has prophesied that the father would, in fact, smite him. Is it possible that the Father, like Abraham, will withdraw his hand? Will you remove this cup from me, Jesus prays. But Jesus fears that there will be no ram this night. Because Isaiah continues, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the Lord's will to crush him. These words spoken hundreds of years before, Jesus knows were spoken about him. And God's word is never broken. This time, there will be no substitutionary ram caught in a thicket on Mount Moriah. The day of bulls and goats and lambs and doves is over. Jesus will be the sacrifice. The Father will sacrifice the Son, and the Son will cry prophetically. Psalm 22 and verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the agony of Jesus 
Not the thought of entering into the presence of His Father through death. The thought of being separated from His Father as He bears sin. He knows that He will be abandoned in some strange sense by the Father. Why is He so traumatized by death? Jesus stood poised to suffer the full expression of God's fury against sin. The white-hot wrath of God would consume the Son. And every fiber in Jesus' body to the very depths of His soul with all His being, Jesus dreads the prospect of becoming sin for you and for me. And the Father's heart breaks. What anger wells in my heart with that book that's been written to say that God the Father abused His Son. That we have here a story of child abuse. And that, in fact, God the Father never had anything to do with the death of Jesus. That's heresy. And that steals salvation. It's also heretical to think that God turned his back against his son. He turned his back against our sin. And as his heavy hand came down on his son's head, the father weeps. This, brothers and sisters, this is the horror of our sin. And this is the depth of God's love for sinners. It is my intense desire that we feel this. That we feel as if we were there. That I feel it. Because it is moments like this that are sanctifying. Are we connecting? Are we together? Ask the question, how beautiful is your sin right now? I want nothing to do with it. This is the result of our sin. And this is the love of God for us. How can we love our sin and how can we do anything but worship? Verse 45, when he rose from prayer, and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. The disciples had come to understand that Jesus would in fact die, and their depression put them to sleep. 
It's interesting to me that Jesus does not sympathize with their sleep. But, verse 46, he says, why are you sleeping? What else can we expect? They have a full stomach. It's the middle of the night. There is a depression that sits on their heads that is heavy. Why do you sleep? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus understands that there are times when sleep is a seductive enemy and even an idol. There are times when sleep is nothing less than moral negligence. Get up and pray. The battle has been won here in prayer on Jesus' knees. And now Christ's submission must play out in action. For as he instructs his disciples and rises from this third season of prayer, the band that is led by Judas has arrived in Gethsemane. Verse 47, while he was speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. This was the customary welcome between a teacher and his master. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Once again, Jesus graciously rebukes Judas. To the end, Jesus seeks to reach the man, pointing out here the horror of this act of betrayal. Will you plant your lips on my cheek in an act of welcome and friendship? In fact, the word for kiss here is the Greek word from which we take the word friendship love. Will you show me friendly affection at this hour? It's meant to arrest Judas, to convict his conscience. But for Jesus, it is the kiss of death. Verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Why do they ask that question? We go back to verse 36, where he told them to buy swords. They produced two in verse 38 of this chapter. He said, that is enough. And they draw the conclusion that he was now talking about those swords that they might resist. Well, Peter never had a habit of waiting around for the answer. While they're asking, should we pick up swords to fight, Peter's already going to work, and his sword flies through the air. In verse 50, one of them, that is Peter, according to John, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. A wild slash with a short sword. Cold steel severs an ear from a man's head. Warm blood rushes down from Malchus's face. On his face, it is first blood. An ear falls to earth in the torchlight, and time stands still. 
And as the party stand frozen on the edge of a deadly skirmish, Christ's commanding voice echoes through the trees. Verse 51, he answered, No more of this! And he touched the man's ear and healed him. In a moment of tense vigilance, I imagine the hands grip drawn swords and spears and clubs ready for action. But Jesus squelches everything when he bends over in the darkness and retrieves a severed ear from the dust. What did he ever say or do to get Malchus to agree to let him touch that spot? Whether it's his reputation as healer or whether it is a gentle word that Jesus says, be still. He reaches out and puts the ear back where it belongs. The dancing torchlight glints off the cold steel of drawn swords and spearheads and soldiers' mouths hang open with wonder. And had anyone in that hostile crowd been in his right mind that night, he would have fallen down at that point on his knees and worshipped. He would have said, I'm changing sides. At best, he would have dropped his weapon and run off into the night. But these men are not driven by rational thought. They are driven by the powers of darkness. It clouded their minds. On that dark night under the olive trees, the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Oh, Peter, what a mess he could have made of everything. Peter was enthusiastic. He was loyal for now. He did not have the mind of God, however, or comprehend his ways. He had no idea of the enormity of the error that he had just committed. Do you know where Christ's enemies will take this? They've got swords. They're fighting. It's Passover season. Unleavened bread. Pilgrims. Swords. Revolutionaries. People are going to die. At bare minimum, there's a man without an ear here. We'd like you to see him. Peter could have ruined everything. But you know, Jesus left in that man Malchus's mind the thought, Jesus never did any physical harm to anyone. And that man Malchus could never forget what Jesus had done. In fact, conjecture. But the fact that John names Malchus may give evidence to the fact that he later changed sides. I'd like to believe he did. And I guarantee that man never got tired of touching that ear and remembering this night. Jesus fixed Peter's mess. Verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. 
Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus exposes their treachery as he has Judas's. If what you want to do has to be done under the cover of night and in the absence of the crowd, shouldn't you be concerned about your motives? It's a good question to his enemies. It's a good question to us. He's been teaching in broad daylight at the temple for days, and they do not arrest him there. We certainly do not see here a man who is cowering in fear of death, do we? We see a man in charge of the scene, a man submitting to his Father's will actively. Putting the Father's will over his own, Jesus acknowledges that this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus was willingly entering Satan's lair. Darkness reigns for now, but the sun will soon rise. Satan and his minions shriek with sadistic glee. The powers of darkness reign on Mount Doom this terrifying night. But unwittingly, Satan actually serves the will of God. And so do his followers. His imps in Gethsemane that night. Darkness reigns for now but the sun will rise soon. Even though the shadow of the cross casts a dark pall over this night, victory was in view. Why? Because the Son submitted to the Father's will. That's why. Because He said, not my will, but yours be done. Everything hung on that. This was the way that Jesus lived. Take this with you. We must filter this truth. This is how Jesus lived. All kinds of people that have written all kinds of books about the secret of the Christian life. And boy, it's taken a lot of ink. There's no one secret. But I think we can certainly draw from the text of Scripture that this was the driving force behind Jesus' life. His submission to, His empowerment by the Spirit of God. Adding to that this mindset, John 4 and verse 34. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. John 6 and verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. John 8 and verse 29, I always do what pleases Him. John 17 and verse 4, As His life comes to a close, He prays, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Not my will, but yours. Is that your orientation of life? Is that the environment in your home? Is that the environment in your heart? Always considering what is the will of God and wanting it. 
it's not going to work to say, you know what, that's hard. You don't understand. That's difficult. Look at the text. Jesus dealt with the hardest call that anyone will ever deal with. This was as hard as it could be to do the Father's will, and He did it. He will empower us to do the same. And I would say that if you have never consciously submitted to the Father's will and set aside your own, I just ask, how in the world can you know that you're a Christian? The follower of Christ knows this experience. Submitting to God's will does not make you a Christian, but it can certainly indicate that you are one. We are living in an age that says, do your will wherever you can. We are living in the presence of a Savior who says, do the will of your Father at all cost. Do you know what it means to live in submission to God's will? Do you know what it means to want something very badly but to deny yourself because God says no? Do you know what it means to not want to do something but you do it simply because Jesus wills it? The followers of Jesus Christ are people whose motivation in life is not my will be done, but your will be done. And it marks their every prayer. We need to nurture this attitude. How do we do it? By the sanctifying power of God's Word, we see the horror of sin and we pray to avoid temptation. We must, in the end, want God's will more than our own, more than we want to live. Isn't that a bit radical? Of course it is. You get the idea Jesus came down to just live a simple, peaceful life? He came to this earth to run a rescue mission for people who are bound to their own will. And he came to liberate us from that self-centered destruction. Of course it's radical. I'll tell you what else it is. It's liberating. Our wills destroy us. They take us away from what is good and what is best. But the will of God never leads us wrong. Paradise was lost when Adam and Eve said, My will be done. At Gethsemane, Jesus said to God, Your will be done. And He put us back on the doorstep of paradise. And how glorious then will the next chapter be for those who hated sin who hated disobedience and who loved to do the will of God, no matter the cost. Where it starts is your wanter. What do you really want? We're not going to get anywhere if we don't want His will. And so right now, as we bow in prayer, there's a spiritual work that's going on. Let's plead with God in prayer to want His will.
Let's sing it, in fact, as we just keep our eyes closed and bowed. You may not know this chorus. If you can join me, I would appreciate that. Let's, as we remain seated with our heads bowed, will you just follow as I sing, and we'll sing it again. I want to do thy will, O Lord. I want to do thy will, O Lord. 